Welcome to Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show where we meet Charlotte area authors and those who visit the Queen City, and we hear them read their work. Support for Charlotte Reader's Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, conveniently located in Park Road Shopping Center. And by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. For more information about these book-minded sponsors who help authors give voice to their written words, please visit them online at parkroadbooks.com and cmlibrary.org or drop by the bookstore or any library branch. In today's episode, we meet author Philip Lewis, who reads and discusses his novel, The Bear Fields. North Carolinian and New York Times bestselling author Ron Rash describes the book as beautifully written and deeply moving, and says that Philip is a very talented writer with a debut that deserves a wide and appreciative readership. The book is full of literary illusions that might be easy to miss, a bit like being on a treasure hunt. The town of Old Buckram, for example, comes from the word buckram a type of coarse linen that is stiffened with glue and used to make book covers. Philip's idea was to have the story take place in Old Buckram, which is to say, within the covers of an old book. He starts at the beginning, with a reading that offers a prescient view of the old town itself. Host Landis Wade is committed to making this podcast worth your time. He's a recovering trial lawyer, award-winning author, book and dog lover, whose laid-back style encourages authors to read and talk about their published and emerging works. These are the stories that touch the emotions, followed by conversations that offer depth and insight into the readings and writing lives of the authors. This show is recorded in the well-equipped podcast studio at Advent Coworking, right here in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte. You can find links and information about this episode in the show notes at our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the stories. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. My father was one of only two children born in Old Buckram Cinder Block Hospital in the cold and bitter autumn of 1939. The other child, a young boy who didn't live long enough to get a name or a soul to be saved, was buried by his mother on a hillside near town when the ground warmed enough to dig him a proper grave. There was no service, and no one sang any hymns. The boy's headstone, if you could call it that, was a large, smooth rock from the creek. He was laid to rest with only his mother's voiceless prayer to an absent God. She asked that he be forgiven the original sin and kindly allowed into heaven to await the others when, in the Lord's wisdom, their day should come. Old Buckram where this story begins, is an achromatic town high in the belly of the Appalachian Mountains. It's situated uneasily about as far north and west as you can go and still be inside the surveyed boundaries of North Carolina. In 1799, the population there was 125, and by 1939, this number had swelled to 400. It's a town where the streets and sidewalks are lonely and seldom traveled, where the few paltry shops, an aging hardware store, a feed store, a cobbler, a discount clothier, a cafe, and a headstone maker scarcely see enough business for a living and close early in the dark days of winter before the snow falls. It's an old railroad town, but the train hasn't gone there in years. It's a town with one-room red brick churches on the hillsides and in the hollows, a town that believes in a God living but remote, and a town with one funeral home that buries almost all the dead. It's a town of ghosts and superstitions. It has the Devil's Stairs and Serpent's Tongue Rock and Abaddon Creek, which carried an entire family into oblivion in the flood of 1916. Up behind the creek at the edge of town lay the Barrow Fields, where by some mystery nothing of natural origin will grow except a creeping gray moss which climbs over mounds of rock and petrified stumps that the more credulous locals believe are grave markers from an age before time. 
Others say a great wind blow came up over the mountains a thousand years ago and ripped out the trees and carried away all the goodness in the soil so that nothing could ever grow there again. Nearly everyone thinks it's haunted ground. There's never been a picnic on the barrow fields of that, you can be sure. If anyone ever knew how my father's family found themselves there in old Buckram, their stories have long since been silenced by many steady turns of the imperturbable clock, and no record of that enigmatic journey has been left behind. My grandfather, whose given name was Helton, told me once that the family might have migrated there from the far north sometime in the 1700s, down the great wagon road that ran from Pennsylvania to the North Carolina Piedmont. He said our ancestors were probably some of the first settlers on this rugged and unforgiving land. Goes to show, he told me, that mine and your daddy's folks were none too smart. Arthur Philip Lewis is a Charlotte attorney who was born and raised in West Jefferson in the mountains of North Carolina, a little more than a stone's throw away from the Virginia and Tennessee lines and not far from the mythical town of Old Buckram where the characters disappear and evolve in his novel, The Bearfields. When Philip is not handling real estate litigation cases or writing literary fiction, he studies language, collects rare books, plays music, mostly piano and the guitar, and reads everything he can get his hands on. The Bearfields is his first book, but he assures us that it will not be his last. It was published in the United States in 2017. It's now been printed by separate publishing companies in the United Kingdom, Poland, Italy, the Netherlands, and France, with a German edition whose German name I can't pronounce, but is going to be called <laughs> Return to Old Buckram, comes this fall. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Philip, welcome to the show. Landis, thanks for having me on. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, so this is your first book. It got great reviews. You poured your time, sweat, and tears into this uh, while you were a full-time practicing law and family man. So I got to ask, how the hell did you do it? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It it wasn't easy. Yeah. There were a lot of sacrifices that had to be made. Um, I would uh, try to get up early in the morning before anybody else in my house got up and uh, and try to get a few hours of riding in. Um, When I got home at night, I would, uh, after the kids got put to bed, I would spend some time trying mm-hmm. to do some edits and that sort of thing. Um, sometimes, very rarely, I would, when I got to work, I would work on the book. Sneak, sneak a little time at lunch <laughs> or your break or whatever, yeah. Yeah, every now and then, every yeah. now and then. Um, it was about a uh, seven-year process from start to finish. And uh, it, it, uh, it's just hard work. I think that uh, there are a lot of people who think that um, you can just sit down and, and start writing magically beautiful things. That's, that's not how it's done. That's not how it's done, <laughs> at least not in my experience. Yeah, yeah. I, I, and I think, it's, I think it's very difficult. It's very hard work. Um, and uh, it's, it's the hardest thing that I've ever done or ever tried to do. Well, let's talk about this, uh, this town, Old Buckram, where you set this. Uh, you grew up near, I say, the mythical town of Old Buckram. You grew up actually in a place... It has some of those qualities, West Jefferson, North Carolina, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and the railroad used to run through West Jefferson many years ago. That's exactly right. And then when it went away, some of the town went away. Yeah. Well, that's right. I mean, um, West Jefferson has it, – it's a, it's a fascinating place with the, the people who live there are, I think, unlike uh, people that you will meet anywhere else in the world. There's just a unique quality uh, that folks seem to have, um, people who choose to live in a place like that, where I grew up, where my mother still lives, um, the, the, the language that they use, the, the dialect, the, um, the, the wit, the humor, all those kind of things. And there's a cheese factory, too. There is a cheese factory. <laughs> and I know the folks who own where, it. Where you can get cheese curds. That's yeah. right. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Yeah. It's, and they, it's a thriving business for them. But, but growing up there, um, you know, that's what you see and that's what you know. And you don't realize how special it is until you leave. Mm. And you go other places and you realize that where you grew up really was an extraordinary place. Well, the Bearfields, um, it, it's, it's, you got a narrator who's, a, who's Henry. He's, he's the son. Um, but there's this disconnect between father and son and father and family. This father takes his family back to this 
town of Old Buckram, and he, he, he puts them in this big mansion on the side of a hill made of iron and glass, which you call the vulture house, right? That's right. Right, and you paint a lot. We're gonna, you're, gonna, you're gonna read some, hopefully, today from uh, about the house and, and where he was, but, but then he's, th- this father's working away, toiling on his life's ambition, this book that he wants to write. And he's working against the clock because he wants to, to get it done before his mother dies, right? That's right. Someone who, like his father, didn't really respect the idea of writing books, right? You start out early in the book talking about that relationship. Get a job, you know. And he, what do you mean? I want to be a writer. Well, that's not really a job, you know. That's right. Yeah. And did you, did you, from time to time, did you, did you feel some of that same thing going on? That's, it's not really a job yet. I've got to, I've got to go to work. I've got to go uptown and do my thing this thing of writing if you were talking to your parents today about it would they say no nah, no nah, you, you need to get a real job <laughs> i mean th- there's no question i think i think a lot of people look at um the prospect of becoming a full-time writer kind of like the prospect of you know pl- one day playing in the nba or <laughs> yeah. you know one day being yeah. a being a great musician i think elvis's dad said something to him like um, you know, Elvis, you need to decide whether you're going to be an electrician or a guitar player. <laughs> and, uh, and we are so glad he chose guitar. Right? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. So how much of you in your life w- were influenced by some of the characters in this book, starting with, with Henry's father? Well, let me start by saying that this book is, is my heart and soul in so many ways. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's difficult when you're writing uh, fiction like this, not to uh, draw on your own life experiences to a certain degree uh, in order to try to find the authenticity um, that a work like this, I think, uh, strives to be. And so this is informed clearly by my relationships with my father, with my mother, with family members, mm-hmm. with experiences I had. And, and this doesn't tell my story, but right. essentially what I tried to do was take the emotional content from some of the experiences I had and, 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 and put them on a completely separate canvas in a completely separate landscape, um, completely different characters, but still derive that same emotional content. Right, but you've said, you've said before when you've talked about this, when you're talking about your relationship with your own father, that you, you had a difficult relationship with him and this idea of you writing uh, and other things that you struggle with with your father. And in one respect just like the father in this book who was racing against time, you too were racing against time a little bit to finish this book and hope to receive some kind of uh, support from your father. Have I got that? Am I close? Oh, yeah, you're you're right on the money, actually. (laughs) Well, talk about that. My father, even though he was an academic guy, he had several uh, degrees and... um, and, and allowed us to grow up in a house that was full of books. Um, he always seemed to doubt the, the value of artistic achievement for its own sake. And when I talked to him early on about writing this book, I think he said something like, um, you know, nobody, uh, why, why would anybody ever write a book except for money? Mm-hmm. And I may have said, because I have things which which I want to say um, that I believe are important and and I want to say them this coming from a man who himself wrote something down at one time that's right he <laughs> he'd, he'd written a book of his own and uh, it was but, but he couldn't understand why his son would want to do that well that, that's right and I don't know whether he was just trying to discourage what he thought might uh, just be a fool's errand I'm not sure but well, maybe he, he was just trying to be, who knows, protected. My dad asked me when I started podcasting, what are they going to pay you to do this? <laughs> right. Which, good question. That's <laughs> right. And then why are you doing it? That, yeah. That's right. So That's right. But my, but my dad, he, um, he suffered, with, um, suffered from depression and alcoholism mm-hmm. for the better part of his life that I remember. And um, it seemed like the, the longer that I worked on this book and then the harder that I worked on it, uh, the further he fell into that depression and alcoholism. And I was, I became certain at some point that he was not going to live long enough to see the book published. Mm. And um, some of that sort of organically uh, wound its way into the, to the narrative of the book. Yeah, and so you have this, this father uh, of Henry in the book who's closeted himself in this library in this big ca- house on the hill, 
and is not doing what he should with his children. His children are sort of growing up despite himself, and then he disappears early in the book, and you don't know why. We don't find that out till the end, but it just kind of creates this chaos for the family. And Henry's much older than his younger sister. And Henry it's about time for Henry to go off to college. And when he leaves, his sister feels like she's being abandoned. And there's another connection there, right, in your own personal story. You, 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 well, you tell it. You, you were, I think I heard you talk about this at a book signing one time about how this influenced the relationship between Henry and his daughter, your own experience as a, as a 16-year-old. That, that's right. When I was 16, um, my, I had a girlfriend who became pregnant, and we had a daughter. And so at 16, I became a dad. And in, in, in a small town like, like any town you'd find, and I think anywhere in America, in any small town, uh, or I guess really anywhere, this type of thing would come with a certain set of challenges. And uh, one of the most difficult things for me was when the time came to go off to college, um, I was going to college at that time. Um, the, my daughter's mother, we were never married, but my daughter's mother um, didn't go to college at the same time I did. And it was a difficult decision whether to leave and, and to go off and try to get a college degree um, and, and, and have that sort of forced separation. And fortunately, I had good mentors, and, and people said to me, look, you can't stay here. You need to go, and you need to go do these things, and you're gonna, you can come back on the weekends, and you can make this work, and that's what I tried to do. But it, um, but it was, a, it was a, a trying, a difficult, and a very emotional period, leaving and, and coming home and leaving and coming home mm. and trying to maintain that most important relationship. Did your daughter read this book, and if she did, what you think? Because there's a, there might be some stuff in here. <laughs> you know, the, the abandonment issue from the younger sister of the older brother. Could it be the younger child of the young man headed off to college? Did, did she have a reaction? To be honest with you, I don't know if she's ever read the whole book. Okay. She and I, with the, you know, we have so many commonalities. Our personalities are so mm. much the same. Mm. But one thing that we have that's just so fundamental to us so innate is our love for books oh great and that's what that's what we did when i would come home from college on the weekends we would just the best time was picking a book out of Mm -hmm. mom and dad's library and we'd start reading it and i'd read her all kinds of things which she probably was too young you know to get at the time but she (laughs) she got it she was just so she was precocious and 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 we spent our lives like that and and we we had um it was like we grew up together with, with this love of books and so one of my first book events was in Chapel Hill and she was living down that way at the time and I had dedicated the book to her and you know one of the things we always did she and I would always do we'd get a book and we'd look at the dedication we'd read the acknowledgments we'd read the copyright <laughs> page you know we just knew everything about it and and so she hadn't seen the book yet she came to the book event and there we are at Flyleaf Books in Chapel Hill which is one of my favorite bookstores and um and so she comes in and sees the book, and it's just this where she's ecstatic. You know, mm-hmm. here we finally got to this point. You know, my dad has this book, and it's been published. And she picks it up, and there are all these people standing around and waiting mm-hmm. to hear me mm-hmm. talk. And, and um, she picks up the book, and first thing she does is turns to the dedication page and sees that it's her name. Right. And she and I both began to cry, <laughs> and we were just holding each other there. Great, great, and, great way to start a book signing. Yeah. Exactly. Um, <laughs> Well, that's, that's a wonderful story. Uh, speaking of books and writing, which is a central theme of the story for both the father and the son in, in the book, just as it was with you and your daughter, um, there's a scene here starting at uh, page 19 of the book that I'd like you to read that kind of kind of gets at this, uh, this relationship you know, with books. All right, so in this, in this scene, Henry, uh, this man you've described who is... Uh, has moved back to this small town to write his magnum opus. This is uh, when he's a young man and he's talking to his mother. And and Henry grew up in a house without books, which is difficult for, I think, all of us to imagine. But he he grew up in a house without books, and literacy wasn't really prized um, like it ought to be. And his, his... he loved books more than anything, and all he wanted to do was to grow up and, and be a writer. 
and here is the conversation that he has with his mother before he goes off to college. Okay, so listen to me for a minute, said Maddie, there on the couch. Eventually, you're going to need to find some way to make money, and I tell you, I'd be awful surprised. Well, how do I say this? She reached over and deposited her ash into a paper cup. Two quick, muffled taps, a familiar sound, a fingertip's friction on the yellowed paper of a cheap cigarette. He heard the irritation in it, sensed it arose from her being inarticulate as to her own thoughts. Let me just say, I've never truly understood this fascination you have with books. Lord knows we've tried. Books ain't everything, honey. Writing's not everything. The truth is, and you're not going to want to hear this, but you can't make a living that way. You just can't. You need to take my word for it. I was talking to your daddy the other night, and he said, and what he said was true. He said, I've never known of a single writer in the history of the language except for Jesus H. Christ who was worth a damn. Honey, he's got a point, and look what happened to Jesus. She eyed him slantwise through the tobacco smoke and just shook her head. There's just so much more that you could do with all the bounteous gifts the Lord has seen fit to bestow upon you. All right, so there, there is humor in literary fiction. <laughs> that, that's great. So th this, you, you sort of compared and contrasted and juxtaposed, so to speak, this this the different generational views about writing and books and literature throughout this book, right? That's right. Yeah. Now, um, the narrator, though, didn't take his mother's advice, right? He went off to college, and like his father, he had an interest in books. But before he went off, and he was this young boy in the town, he kind of looked up to his dad because, you know, even though his dad was a little aloof and not always present for him, um, you know, his dad was the guy who could fix things, right? And his dad was somebody he counted on. And his dad loves books, so this scene takes place. And, and you can envision this happening in a place like Old Buckram, the way you described it, where some books got into the uh, library that just, by gosh, shouldn't be there, right? That's right. Right. I mean, there's filth in them and there's stuff and all that kind of thing. So we're going to have a little scene here, uh, kind of a, you know, a nod to this. I think you, you talk about uh, Faulkner. Well, Faulkner is the book, right? That's yeah, that's one, right, As I that's Lay the, Dying. That's the one they're going to burn. That's right. right. Terrible, terrible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, awful. <laughs> Salacious. <laughs> All right, so pick it up whenever you're ready. Amen, said someone standing beside me. Another hearty amen came from the far side of the circle. Another voice said, tell it, brother. Two ladies near me began to whisper their own disparate prayers that crisscrossed and wound around each other like two snakes climbing the same tree. Now, I haven't read this book, said Maynard. You haven't read it? father said incredulously. He had appeared out of nowhere next to Maynard, whose expression of surprise was so great that I thought his eyeballs might tumble out of his head. You haven't read it? Father said again, this time with a little more effort. He was still feeling the effects of his alcohol and was having trouble getting his words out. No, said Maynard through his parted teeth. I haven't read it and I'm not going to. Then to the assembly he called out, but I know what's in it. If the crowd had been ambivalent before, it had now chosen a side. At Maynard's words, a cheer went up, and as the cheer subsided, a lady's voice was heard saying, Ain't no point in reading that nonsense. So when I was reading this, I was, I was you know, you thought perhaps that the father was going to come in and do something dramatic, right? Right, <laughs> And say, right. say Save the books, but he kind of let things play out. Um, and used it as a lesson uh, for his son that, that you can't always, you know, can't always deal with ignorant son. <laughs> well, well, that's right. And don't, yeah. and don't we always think until some critical point in our childhood that our parents are superheroes, right. that they're immortal, that they can do anything. And, and clearly here, uh, it, it, there, there was nothing that Henry could do to, to stop this book banning and the book burning and but it, yet at the insistence of his son, he he made an effort. He he tried. He made a hell of a good effort. Um, but I think all of us reading the book knew that there was very little that can be done. But it was his 
part of his initial fall from grace in the eyes of his son. So this leads into a discussion of the, the literary allusions that you use in the book, because one of them that you use is uh, for this minister, Harold Specks, right? Um, which you say comes from the word, I don't know if I'm going to get it right, Harris Specks, is that right? That, that's right. The, the emphasis is often on the second syllable, Haruspex, but well, you which I think that's you can right. do it either way. Yeah. Okay. And it, you say it's a species of priest in ancient Rome who practiced the dubious art of divination on the basis of what could be seen in the entrails of dead animals. Well, that, that's now, right. Phil, what are, you, what are you doing at night, man? I mean, you, <laughs> come over this stuff. Pull that mic a little closer to you. <laughs> well, I t- so here's don't, what I, don't run away from me. When I'm <laughs> <talking>. <laughs> well, here's here's what I think. I, I love to read books that yeah. operate on more than one level and right. have these little these little tidbits and things in there where you know you, you could read this book and probably. Ninety nine percent of the people who read this book read right over that and never thought once. I'm uh, raising my hand. I, I, <laughs> right? I, I didn't get it. <laughs> but but now that I know it, now that you know, why don't you put footnotes or something in there so we can pick this up? You know, I now. could. But you know what a publishing company <laughs> yeah, would yeah, say? Yeah, they yeah. would say nope. that would distract the reader. Oh, yeah, you know, yeah. that would take them out of the right. It would, uh, it would out of the moment. Probably would. But but okay. So let's talk about these literary because I was thinking. You also there's a family cemetery in in the book and it's called were well, you A V E R N U S Avernus Aver, okay Avernus that's what, that's time, how you'd say it in old Buckle. emphasis is on the first syllable. that's right <laughs> okay well the name Avernus you say derives from a volcanic crater in Italy that gave off noxious gases which killed birds flying overhead okay <laughs> and that's what you pick for the cemetery. Well, that, yeah. that's right. I mean, yeah. it was it was essentially the gateway to hell. Okay. Avernus was that that's that was the idea, and and that was the that was the old family cemetery where Henry and his family uh, would eventually be buried. And the idea was behind that, um, Henry was not a he was not a religious person. He was mm. highly skeptical of traditional religion, and. Um, there were people in the town who thought that when he went into the ground, he was at the gateway to hell. And then you have one with the harp, right? Yes, the yes, the Aeolian harp. Yeah, it's a, it's. A I'm waiting for you. I'm waiting for you to do the first <laughs> word, <laughs> the Aeolian harp, and because that's all about uh, darkness and depression, and uh, you know Henry's play playing sometime and the old piano and as you say the piano old and disconsonant began to jangle like a band of drunken minstrels and you use this reference to the Aeolian heart harp yeah see I always like that there are two poems that Coolridge wrote um, that had to do with the harp uh, uh, one was the um, the Aeolian harp as you mentioned and the second one was um, dejection and ode and I don't know if he remembered writing the first one when he wrote the second one but in the first one, he's he's uh, sort of lazing about, and it's a Saturday afternoon or a Sunday afternoon, and he's got this beautiful lady on his arm, and he hears the wind blowing through the instrument, and it's just it's just exquisite, and it's just wonderful. He says there are these long, sequacious notes, and it's and it's just you know his heart is just bursting, and then later uh, in in the poem De- "Dejection and Ode," when he's experiencing this this bout of darkness and depression, he hears the same thing, and into his ears, then suddenly it has become this this raking uh, noise, this this disconsolate mess of sound, and and I have a scene in the book where Henry, the narrator, sits down at the family's grand piano after his father has left, and he, he I think he's also struggling with depression. He begins to play, and it, initially, it has the that. Uh, he's playing those long, sequacious notes and so forth. But as he continues to drink wine and I think some Polish vodka that he found when he was there, um, his depression sets in. He, he's unable to fend it off any longer. And then he begins to hear the, um, the, the, the piano being out of tune and everything, all the chords that are now uh, disharmonious begin to, begin to bother him. Uh, before the break, we're going to have one more. You're going to read another piece that has that weaves music into the book before you do that i've got i've got a question all these literary illusions as you're writing a book okay you're trying to tell a story you got you got to worry about plot you got to worry about characters i mean that's like throwing on the brakes right oh i got to think about let me think about this i'm going to put this literary illusion oh let me go look up this and 
So is that what made it take seven years, or was that just life? Is why it took so long. I, it, it, that that's really not that was. Or do you just have a photographic memory and you just remember the stuff and it falls on the page in front of you? I certainly don't have a photographic memory, <laughs> but all these things, the the the, the poems and the books um, that are referenced in the book were, were poems and books that were so important to me mm-hmm. somewhere along the way, where I ha- I had read. Um, the poem or I had read the book and it had touched me in such a way and, and left such something so powerful with me. And, and it was easy. It was just to, it was just so natural for it to be so, such a part of the story because so many of these emotions that I had felt at various points in my life were closely connected to these works of literature and, 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 and these poems that it, 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 it was absolutely natural. Well, you worked so many of them, man. I'm wondering what you're going to have for your next <laughs> book, because I'm looking at the list here. Herman Melville, Thomas Wolfe, Edgar Allan Poe, William Faulkner, William Shakespeare, Emily Dixon, J.R. Tolkien, Albert Camus, Ernest Hemingway. I can go on and on. You got some left for the next book? Maybe one or two. <laughs> maybe one or two. I was reading Emerson today, um, <laughs> and I came across a poem of his. That, uh, while you're working at the law firm. You know, <laughs> well, read, read, yeah. <laughs> well, I was on my lunch break. <laughs> okay, yeah. You know. Everybody out there reads Emerson on their lunch break. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and I came across a poem of his where he was, um, he was writing about losing his five-year-old son. And, and it, it, I just found it devastating. It was just crippling and I and I made a note to myself and I, I know that I'll never forget it as mm. long as I live mm. well let's do music before the break here I want you to turn to page 206 if you would um, you weave music into the book in various places uh, you, you're an artist yourself I mean you, you play guitar and also piano right that's right so you've worked into the into the scene here uh, a little melody uh, reference to it so let, let's read that okay um, the quick setup on this is that uh, Henry's there with uh, his a, a girl whom he has fallen in love with and and uh, someone who he is deeply passionate about and this is at the very beginning of their courtship and there's there have been so many days where he sat at his piano and played with all his heart's passion hoping that she might just come and stand at his doorway and hear him playing and know that it that it, that it was music that he was playing for her and so now here she is she's come in to the room and she's she's there with him and, and he has his chance The room was small, and the uneven floor held only the piano, a couch, and an old chair. The piano stood against an inside wall. I sat down to play, and Story stood behind me, next to me, watching. I could hear her breathing. I opened the book of music and then closed it again. I could read it without seeing it. I played the fantasy impromptu, Chopin's posthumous opus 66 the one I always played thinking she might happen to come by my door and hear the music and know it was for her. Allegro agitato. Begin. An octave in the left hand struck like a bell, a foreshadowing. Then dark arpeggios again in the left hand, an approaching cannonade, fiercely ascending runs in the right, intricate, delicate, unrelenting, a sense of acceleration tempered by a cascading retreat. And we begin again. Breathe, surge, dissipate, surge, pedal, pedal, pedal. This cut time rhythm pushes you along. After only a minute, we are brought up short by a crashing left-hand cadence. And it is here that a sweet, simple melody ensues pianissimo that has no parallel in modern music to my knowledge. This perfect melody was, in my bursting heart, the song of story. With exquisite fleeting variations, it lingers, frolics, demurely relents, and is gone. The light of a single day. At once the surging silver cannonade returns, and the melody, now hidden and faint to the ear's remembrance, becomes almost forgotten. At the end of this magnificent tumult, when the piece is drawing to a close and fading into silence, the sweet, perfect melody appears once more, this time in the left hand alone, this time only once. And it worked, right? He got the girl. He got the girl. (laughs) (laughs) 
and then and then we went and that spun into a mystery involving the girl and her family and that kind of thing. That, that, that's that, right. That's another layer of the book here. All right. So when we come back in just a moment, uh, we're gonna we're gonna deal into the writing life segment with Philip. We're also gonna have a couple more readings from the book. So stay with us. Christmas is coming, and host Landis Wade has a trilogy of books to get you in the Christmas spirit. He wrote the first in the series, The Christmas Heist, as a Christmas gift for his family, which the former dean of Wake Forest Law School called a cross between My Cousin Vinny and Miracle on 34th Street. In his second book, The Legally Binding Christmas, the characters return to save Christmas once again. The final book in the trilogy, The Christmas Redemption, won the 2018 holiday category of the 12th Annual National Indie Excellence Awards and was the 2018 holiday category honorable mention in the 10th Annual Reader's Favorite Awards. One reviewer said, believing without seeing is a powerful idea and it's at the heart of the Christmas redemption. These books are available at Park Road Books, Main Street Books, Foggy Pine Books, and online. And when you sign up for the email list at charlottereaderspodcast.com, you'll receive for free the first book in the series as an ebook, complete with illustrations. Charlotte Readers Podcast and host Landis Wade are grateful to you for listening to this show. If you like the show, please leave a short written review on Apple Podcasts, also known as iTunes, or the podcast platform of your choice, because your review helps authors share their stories with more listeners. Thank you for your support. All right, we're back with uh, Philip Lewis, author of The Bear of Fields. And uh, Philip, now we're going to do something uh, that I'm calling the writing life segment. Uh, we'll start off with a few truth-false questions. And this is only your truth, okay? So routine is an important part of my writing process. True. True, and how so? I think as much routine as you can build into the writing process, um, the more efficient that you're going to be in actually getting words on the page. Hmm. Um, I, I struggle with routine, I, but, I, but I found that um, the more time that I could put my butt in the seat at my writing desk or anywhere else where I can, where I can write, um, the, the better off I can be. And, and if, you, if, you, if you can make your process fairly regular, then it sh- ensures that you know, you're going to do it every day. Mm-hmm. I hear a lot of writers lament that, you know, they don't have time, they can't find time to do the writing that they want to do, um, and that they struggle to, um, you know, get the words on the page to, to get going. And so even if you sit down and you don't get any words on the page, but, you know, you do the same thing every single morning, um, at least you have this process where you know at 5.30 in the morning, you're going to sit down and try to start the process. Is that your time, morning? That's when I, I think when I'm, my head is the clearest yep, okay. and they're the least distractions. Uh, true, false. And this is a little bit of a nod to Forrest Gump. Writing a first draft is like a box of chocolates. I don't know what I'm going to get. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's, I think that's absolutely right. I think what you're trying to do with the first draft is just kind of is just get the ideas out there on the page, you know, yeah. just to try to build the framework of the house. Right. And yeah. uh but, you know, you have to realize it, it, it's just going to – your brain is a very interesting place, right? Yeah. I mean, you've got all these different ideas and, and, and different uh, spontaneous thoughts that come to you. And when you start writing, who knows where it's going to go? And that's part of the beauty of it. I mean, that's, that's where, you know, it can really turn magical. And it doesn't always. I mean, the first draft is generally pretty bad, I think. Uh, yeah, I think I've told this story before. When I was writing my first book, I would come in at night, practicing law like you were, mm-hmm. and my wife would say, well, where are you going? I said, well, I'm going to the study to find out what happens next. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's right. right. Yeah, let's, let's go find out what happens next. All right, publishing is a journey, not a sprint. Oh, true or false? True or false. Oh, there's no question it's a journey. Yeah. I mean, it's a slog. Yeah. Yeah. I <laughs> a mean, marathon. It, it's a marathon <laughs> with, with uh, carrying, uh, yeah. carrying yeah. gallons of milk. <laughs> in a knapsack behind you, um, it's it's a yeah. long, arduous process. Yeah. The editing process can be brutal, and every time you think you get to where you're just about finished, and and people at home can't see this, but I'm doing air quotes around finished because you never <laughs> yeah. really finish the right, book. Right. Until you want to revise until you revise until you revise. That's yeah. right. I mean, it just goes on and on. So you think you're finished, and then you get another round of revisions or proposed revisions from from an editor, and uh, it's a it is a slog of all slogs. All right, a couple of uh, fill-in-the-blanks. Okay. I write because... I have to. Yeah. 
just have to. Got to. Without it, you'd be. I don't know. I don't know, but I, 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 I just I feel compelled. I don't have any choice. The first time I felt like I could call myself a writer was when? I had written the draft of the book, and it was in 2014. And I said to someone that I was talking to, um, I'm a lawyer, and I'm trying to be a writer. And this person said, you've written a book. You are a damn writer. And <laughs> Makes she, sense. Yeah. The vices and activities that interfere with my writing include? Well, how specific do you want me to be? <laughs> <laughs> You'd be as specific. We, we can put whatever kind of tag on this podcast we want. Yeah. Well, I love my wife and children dearly. Yeah. and um, and and But I will say that um, if the kids are awake in the house, yeah. it's, you know, yeah. the, they are – within your consciousness and uh, it's difficult to be putting pen on paper and getting cogent thoughts down um, when when the kids are there either hitting you with something or squirting water at you or whatever the case may be um, I think if so uh, yeah. just know, family yeah. family yeah. activities yeah. can have an impact so this maybe is a good segue here if I could use superhero powers in my writing I would choose would you stop time? Would you fly fast? Oh, I would you stop know? time. That's, I think that's a great idea. <laughs> yeah. I would stop time and I would keep it stopped. <laughs> that's good. All right. Uh, let's, let's do a few open-ended questions. Uh, what is the fact about you as a writer that people might be surprised to learn? You know, that's a great question. I don't know the answer to that. I, I think as a writer, one thing that we struggle with is communicating to people who we really are. And I think that people are, will read your work and and not sometimes not read it closely and and give it a superficial kind of review and 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 not understand that there is depth to it. Mm. And almost sometimes people I feel like you have to really say look at this there is depth to it and look for that depth before people will will take the time to slowly read it and and see what's really there and so that kind of leads into a true false i left off for you but i'll ask it now true false rejection doesn't bother me rejection? Bad, bad reviews don't bother me. oh my god <laughs> rejection rejection kills me <laughs> And uh, bad reviews are yeah. like a knife through the heart. Yeah. Um, I stopped reading. But you have to get beyond. You just have to move beyond. I mean, it, well, you you do, but you know, right. you care what people say, right? right. Um, I, there was a period of time when I was reading um, every Goodreads review that came out. That's not good for your. Oh, let me tell you. So, <laughs> some of them are great, right? right like right. You, you know, you read the great ones and you're right. your highs. You feel great, and then you get you know you get a bad one, and somebody's like, "This guy's an idiot," and right. he has no, you can't put yeah. two sentences together. <laughs> And so I was um, around that time. I was. But they might be reading comic books for all you know. Well, yeah. that's right. Yeah. But I sent some of the bad reviews to my agent and said, "Look at this stuff. These yeah. people are just. This is terrible." And he said, yeah. his response was, "He said, Philip, don't read those reviews <laughs> on Goodreads. Right. Those people don't know what they're talking about." And or, that made me feel a little bit better. Or, that, or, that made me feel a little bit yeah. better. But then. I had like this run where I had all these really great ones. And do that, that, and they were coming thinking, in. Well, do they know what they're talking well, about? Well, I sent them to him too, and I said, "Look at these. These people love me." And he yeah. said, "Philip, they don't, don't read these. <laughs> these people don't know what they're talking about." But isn't it true though that it, it's it's? I mean, you want to connect with readers, right? And you want readers right. to to get something. Out. What do you hope that readers get out of your work? What emotions I, do you want to tap? I think that on a very basic level. Most of us, all of us, have had similar life experiences of love and loss and, and, and happiness and joy and grief. And, and what I've tried to do with the Barrow Fields is articulate those things in, in an authentic way so that you can read it, you can read it, and and find some human commonality there of, of experience in a way that is, that is truly meaningful. Mm. All right, before we get back to a few readings, uh, this is your either-or segment. 
take one or the other, neither or both or all. All okay. right. Uh, and this is about your writing process. Ink pen or keyboard? Ink pen. You use a pen. You write it out. Absolutely. Do you? Oh, yeah. I can't read my own handwriting. That's right. Dictionary or spell check? Dictionary. I got a lot of dictionaries. Do I love you? dictionaries, yeah. Outline or free flow? Both. You do both. At what part in the process? I, um, it's a combination. Yeah. I, I, for the barrow fields, I outlined it, um, segments of it many times, but, but it, you know, it evolved. I, I allowed it to evolve the way that it, it needed to evolve. In the light of day or the dark of night? Oh, the dark of night. You like to write. Okay. Oh, yeah. Complete quiet or ambient noise? Com- complete quiet unless I need a piece of music to give me some kind of um, some sort of feeling that I'm trying to trying to find, you know, mm. so, so like if I, you know, I'll know a piece like Chopin or something, you know, late period Beethoven, right. where I, I, it makes me feel a certain way, and I'm trying to capture that, and I'll put that on, and I'll just maybe play a two minute segment over and over and over again, and try to find it, try to find that feeling. You're not saying Alexa play '70s pop music. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Writing the first draft or revising it? The, the fun part for me is the revision. And when I say fun, I mean not fun at all. Right. You know, <laughs> I'm torturous. But, but that's where uh, you can really uh, explore your mind and, and, and find uh, amazing things to put on the page. All right, last question. Marketing or manual labor? Oh, <laughs> Uh, manual labor, yeah, yeah, a hundred times out of a hundred. Uh, marketing is its own special kind of humiliation most of the time. And one thing we find out because I bring authors on like yourself that are, you know, traditionally published. I have small press. I have independent published. I have short stories in it. But no matter where you are, it seems like you still got to promote your own work. I mean, it doesn't matter unless you're the top of the top. You know, you, you're still going to have to get out there and push your own. Work, oh yeah, right? that's yeah. right. Yeah, which means you probably got to have a Twitter account and Instagram, and you're all over that, right, Philip? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, you're expected to have a Twitter yeah. account and Instagram and all that sort of stuff, but it's um, it is the, the, an unpleasant part of the job most of the time. All right, we got time for just a couple more. We're gonna do uh, we're gonna go to the uh, to the workspace library for a minute. Uh, it's a place that uh, I think was an important part of the story, important to you, important to the to where the father was spending a lot of his time. Uh, Philip, tell us a little bit about what you're going to read now. One of the characters in this book um, is, strangely enough, a house. And it's the vulture house that you mentioned, and it's this, this extraordinary um, monstrous Gothic skeleton that sits high on the, uh, the edge of this mountain in Old Buckram. And it's the kind of thing which... Uh, it's, it's sort of an odd architectural curiosity, night and day, and uh, this is where uh, Henry eventually wound up and placed his family and where he began the composition of what he wanted to be his magnum opus. And one of the most extraordinary features of, the, of this house uh, is that um, if you stand in the great room on the first floor, it's open. Uh, all the way up through the second floor and the third floor to this glass and iron ceiling above. And on the second floor is an extraordinary library with these shelves that are 12 feet high. They go all the way around this, this, this opening in the floor, this aperture, and, um, and there's a railing that goes around the library uh, to keep you from you know, falling in uh, down into the hole, uh, down into the great room. And so Henry, when he uh, returned to Old Buckram with his family and found this house, he walked into it and it looked a little bit like something that maybe Edgar Allan Poe might have constructed. And he said, you know, here is some place that I can write. And off uh, a hallway of the library was Henry's office, his writing office. And so what I'm about to read is um, following a description of this, of this Gothic uh, skeleton of a house, and uh, and I'm going to take you around a bit, and then into the father's writing room. And yet, despite all the foolhardy extravagance and excess, there was inescapably an emptiness, a bleak chill, 
and a hostility to the house that could never be ignored or forgotten. No matter what efforts were undertaken in the way of decoration and the quaint placing of personal effects, the house had a way of communicating its chronic malaise. There were far corners and hallways that refused to be illuminated. There were rooms that couldn't be heated and wintry drafts from no identifiable source that numbed your feet and breathed a cold and unwelcome omen down your neck. There were closets, the tops of which always harbored imperturbable spiders with thick, irrational webs, and in all seasons, chittering black bats, excited by the tethered moon, circled high on the chimney spires at twilight. In the full context of this haunted estate, let's go back now to the second floor and walk around the library together. You hold on to the railing and let it slide through your fingers, a faint trace of rust accreting on your fingertips and in the palm of your hand. Looking at the towering shelves, you think, how many books can this hold? Could I read that many books in a lifetime? As we walk around, we come to a small hallway in the corner of the room that breaks off into darkness. You didn't see it at first. It's almost hidden from sight. When I show it to you, you see that it leads to a small cubicle chamber, a prison almost, inside of which is a desk, a chair, and a lamp. This was my father's space. It was here that he would sit and write, and where all his hours vanished. All right, Philip, so we've got the big house, we've got the big library, we've got the little office off to the side of it there, um, and then the son comes back and embeds himself in the same environment, and he's going through his father's papers later in the book, and he finds a letter that I think is probably a good, it'd be, it'd be a nice little piece to read here because it kind of kind of elicits something about the mood of old Buckram, and uh, so can you read that for us? Sure, I'd be happy to. In the morning... You hear the incessant crowing of the rooster from a far valley. You walk along the lonely dirt road beside a cheap barbed wire fence, uneven and holding knots of mane or tail, the sticky milkweed in the ditch, the Queen Anne's lace growing there in the long grass and clover, and beside the road there is a catalpa tree and a crab apple and a black locust that is older than you are. In the evening, Darkness sets early on the land as the sun falls behind the mountains, and the beginnings of a raw wind come up out of the earth. The sound of the last passing cars fades into nothingness, and the creek behind the house is left to run like an hourglass in the cold. And when autumn is subsumed by winter, and the sky is white from morning until night, and the first snow falls from the pale white sky, life and hope retreat. There is a sadness, a colorlessness, that lives in the far northwestern mountains in Old Buckram. There is a stillness that exists nowhere else in the world among the places I've been. It's always there, looking, lurking just beyond the invented clamor and tumult of the day. Yet this stillness is not one of quiet comfort. It is not the drowsy calm that descends when the earth turns away from the sun and all living things find shelter and warmth and sleep. No, it is not this. It is a stillness of disquiet. It is a terrifying midday silence of nothingness and desolation. From any place in the mountains, you will see the white mist rising and churning above the valleys, the rows upon geometrically perfect rows of Christmas trees lining the hillsides, the once green mountains in the foreground fading to shades of blue in the magnificent distance. You will see leafless trees tremble in the invisible winter wind. You will smell the wood smoke from so many distant fires. You will see the rutted roadways and dead grass in all the yards and a murder of crows in search of food in a lifeless field. But all this you will see in stillness. You are alone in this place. Anyone who has lived through more than one winter here knows it all too well. I don't know why I ever went back. I know now that one can never leave a place completely. And so the son finds this, this father's 
sort of literary, literary description of, of this place that, that he called home for so many years, and he's coming back. And he himself is, uh, I think you say later in the chapter, as he's approaching the house, he says, my mind briefly entertained the preposterous fantasy that the house was alive and that it hated me with all its soul, that it would kill me were I to return home and reclaim possession of it. Up the hill we went, he and his dog. <laughs> so he goes back. He goes so he back. goes back, he yeah, goes home yeah. again. Um, so backwards, forwards, sideways, uh, where, where do we go next with the writing, Philip? Well, I've got to write another book. Yeah. I'm working on another book now. They always, you know, when you do well with your first book, they want that book in a year. That's yeah. right. Yeah. That's right. And uh, and I'm not going to be able to do that. <laughs> this book actually came out two years ago now, uh, two years ago in March. Right. Um, and uh, But I am I am taking my time, and um, I, I have uh, good ideas, and I believe, I, I, I'd like to believe that I do. We'll find out. And uh, I'm getting a lot of what I believe is uh, is some good stuff down on paper that's making me happy. So, but, it, but it's um, it's a long, slow process. So maybe a few more years. Well, in addition to Park Road Books, our sponsor, and I saw you at a book signing there when your book came out. In addition to Park Road Books, where else can people find your books? Pretty much anywhere, I suppose. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Amazon, uh, mm-hmm. Barnes and Noble, uh, any anywhere online. Uh, yeah. Go to the independent bookstores. Go to yep. Park Road Books. They're exactly. the best people in the world. Um, Flyleaf Books in Chapel Hill. They're great bookstores in North Carolina and South Carolina. Um, that's that's where I would start. So tell us about your website. What is it? I think <laughs> I think it's philiplewisauthor.com. You want me to help you out here? It's philiplewisauthor.com. All right, that's good. I hadn't you thought about that in a while. I hope, your, right. pu- I hope your publicist and your, your publisher aren't listening. <laughs> I know. Can we cut this? that part? Yeah, cut that part. <laughs> you, do you have any other handles? Are you Twittering? Are you Instagramming? Yeah, I'm on you? Twitter as uh, E.K. Hornbeck, at E.K. Hornbeck. And that was the play Inherit the Wind. Do you remember that? About the uh, Scopes Monkey trial? Yes. Um, H.L. Mencken covered that uh, trial for the Baltimore Sun, and he was depicted in H.L. Uh, Mencken, big, I'm a huge fan of Mencken, um, and I love all his work. Um, he was depicted in uh, Inherit the Wind as uh, E.K. Hornbeck instead of H.L. Mencken. And so <laughs> when Twitter first became a thing, I needed a handle, and I thought, well, I'll be E.K. Hornbeck, and I've just kept it ever since. It makes it kind of hard for people to find you on Twitter. <laughs> Probably does. <laughs> yeah. Not good marketing. I don't think I would have just put in E.K. Hornbeck <laughs> to find Philip Lewis. But uh, And this thing about getting published in Germany in the fall? or in How's that? That's right. Yeah. We, it's, uh, it, I think it's great. We've. Um, You're going to come back on and read it in German next time? I'm going to learn it in German. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've got a, a great um, translator, and we worked for a couple of years yeah. on the translation, and she was just wonderful. She's done translations of some very important books in Salman Rushdie's books, um, and she was amazing. She would call me and say, um, I've got this sentence, and I, and I understand that there's, you know, there's a, there's a literal, literal interpretation and there's some figurative uh, aspects to it. But I just want to make sure that I get like the local regional connotation that's there because I feel like I'm missing something. Tell me, you know, how else, how else can you say this? How can you explain this to me? And so she did an incredible job trying to capture all the nuance and, and in the translation to German. So I'm really excited about that. That's see great. how that comes that's out. That's great. All right, Philip. Well, look, thanks so much for being on the show. It was, it was a lot of fun. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to their written words. And that's also it for season four, where 16 authors gave voice to their written words. In next week's episode, we have a bonus. We recorded a live podcast in September with author Heidi Brown, who is a law professor at Brooklyn Law School. Heidi struggled for many years with extreme public speaking anxiety and the perceived pressure to force an extroverted persona throughout her career. She finally embraced her introversion and quiet nature as a powerful asset in teaching and practicing law. The topic is her book, The Introverted Lawyer, A Seven-Step Journey Toward Authentically Empowered Advocacy. We talked about more than just lawyers. The episode is about introverts, many of whom like to read and write. What Heidi has to say might easily translate to the introverted writer, which was the subject of our writer's life segment. 
because the introverted writer has to pitch their manuscript or market their book or do any of the many other things introverts might like to avoid. The book is part memoir, part how-to. And even if you're not a lawyer, I think you might like it. For periodic updates about the show and upcoming authors, please sign up for the podcast email list at charlottereaderspodcast.com. We promise not to spam you because Landis says that takes too much time. And if you do sign up as a thank you, Landis will give you an ebook complete with illustrations, his first in the Christmas Courtroom Trilogy. Please don't forget our sponsors, Park Road Books and Charlotte Mecklenburg Library. Links to our five sponsors and the resources are on the webpage and in the show notes. You can listen to Charlotte Readers Podcast episodes for free at charlottereaderspodcast.com or at Charlotte Mecklenburg Library's digital branch website. And you can subscribe and listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to get your podcasts. You can find out more about us and our sister shows at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Charlotte Readers Podcast is available on social media, on Facebook at Charlotte Readers Podcast, on Twitter at Charlotte Reader, on Instagram and on LinkedIn at Landis Wade. Until next week, I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast.